0: Well, as we prepare to uh, come to the Word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do rejoice and celebrate the fact that your Son was born. Christ, the Lord of the universe, was given to us to be born among us. The wonder of that will captivate our minds and our hearts for all of eternity. And I pray that this morning it would do so afresh. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1961, American scholar Daniel Borstein invented the term pseudo event. A pseudo event he described was an event created by politicians and other communicators in order to simply draw public attention. The rise of television and mass media had produced a transformation of the news business so that what mattered now was not whether an event was important, but whether it was newsworthy. And as Borstein explained, the pseudo-event was orchestrated and planned to receive maximum public attention, even if the event itself was really unimportant. Pseudo-events merely look important because the media and the public agree to act as if they were. As Borstein explained, the pseudo-event is not something that happens by mistake, like a train wreck or some accident. It's something planted primarily for the immediate purpose of being reported. And so unlike normal events, which happen in the normal course of time and therefore are then uh, announced and covered, these are carefully planned and executed to draw the eyes of the nation and to captivate us for a certain period of time. This could be a planned statement by a politician it could be a planned showdown on a certain policy proposal, or it simply could be by focusing on what politicians say and about event instead of the actual event itself. But at the end of the day, something has happened, and the media has covered it, but it was a highly choreographed and planned event simply to divert our attention and not an actual event. But in our text this morning, we don't have a pseudo-event, one that was created just to gather a bunch of attention. We have an actual event recorded by a historian. Now, there have been some unbelieving critics who have tried to accuse not only this event, but really most of the events in the Gospels as created and fabricated by the early Christian community in order to back up their claim that they're Chosen leader, Jesus, was truly one to be followed. But what we have here was something that happened that was so amazing, so incredible, an actual event that took place in history and in time and space that captivated the the minds and hearts of all who heard of these events. And it took place on a night on the Judean hill country 2,000 years ago. I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, for us to see the details of this tremendous event when heaven celebrated the arrival of God's Son. Luke, chapter 2, We'll read this morning, let's begin in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 14 just to give us our context. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph And laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're going to look at this text this morning in two basic ways. We're first going to look at the story, the facts that are presented here, and then we'll look at the significance of this story for us today. Let's first begin by just examining the facts of this story. This story left off in verse 7 with the birth of Jesus to Mary. And as we noted last week, it was a really simple account, a basic description of what took place. It came time for Mary to give birth, and so she did. She gave birth to her firstborn son. It's so abbreviated you could almost miss it. Just another mother who gives birth, wraps the baby and lays him in a makeshift crib. But what was unspectacular in verse 7 becomes spectacular in verses 8 through 14. And so first, the first aspect of the story that we see is is the setting. That the shepherds are in the field, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. In the same region, very well, these were Bethlehem shepherds, shepherds who who lived in Bethlehem and kept their flocks out and around this little town. They were out in the field keeping watch over their flock. It simply says that they were outdoors. So the scene changes from a simple peasant home where Jesus is laid in a manger to the vast expanse of the night sky. These sheep could have been grazing or they could have been kept in a sheep fold, a, a either a, a cave, a natural cave that were in the area where the sheep would have been herded for the night to be protected, and the shepherds then keeping keeping uh, uh, taking turns, keeping watch, some sleeping, one awake, making sure there were no predators coming to the sheep and interestingly, this Note at the end of verse 8 that this happened at night is the only indication in this whole account that this was an evening or a nighttime incident. Nothing from the paragraph before or what takes place afterward tells us what time of day these events took place. But simply by this designation here that Jesus was born at night. Some like to say that the shepherds were the outcasts of society. And while there is indications in later centuries in Jewish writings that shepherds were considered perpetually, ceremonially unclean due to their occupation, there's no indication here in the first century that shepherds were so despised. In fact, the, if you look through the Old Testament history, many of Israel's uh, patriarchs were shepherds. They were Nomads, they moved around with their flocks and their herds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses kept flocks. David, most notably, right, who came from Bethlehem here and kept watch over his father's flocks. And and if you remember Psalm 23, God himself pictured himself as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so a shepherd still had somewhat of an honored history, but they indeed were among the rugged of society. They spent their time outdoors among the sheep. They were not considered the sophisticated of the day. They represented the lowly or the common people. And therefore, the scene we have here is heaven announcing to a group Of everyday people, the arrival of Heaven's Son. Now we don't know what time of year this takes place. Tradition, Christian tradition, from very early on has the the date of Christ's birth at December 25th, a midwinter date, and it very well could be the case. There's also a good case to be made that. Jesus was born actually in the summertime in which the sheep would have been outside and grazing the freshly harvested wheat fields in the area. We don't know exactly what time of year Jesus was born, but the reality is is it doesn't entirely matter to the story. Otherwise, Luke, the historian, would have recorded that. And we can celebrate it here in the end of December and simply celebrate a time of year in which we can remember the birth of, of our Lord. And so as far as the shepherds were concerned, they were out on the field. They were taking turns keeping watch over their flock by night. It was an ordinary night for them as they watched the sheep. But this ordinary night is suddenly disrupted with the appearance of an angel. And that brings us to the second aspect of this story, and that is the appearance, the appearance of angels in the sky. These shepherds are simply watching their flock, and then verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, you can imagine the shock of these shepherds as they're going through an ordinary, normal night, some of them no doubt resting, while the other is keeping a watch of the shared flocks, and all of a sudden, the dark night is disrupted and interrupted with bright light. And they're wondering what in the world is going on? What is happening to us right now? This bright light, not only shown around the angels, but shown around the shepherds, and too, it seems to have engulfed. The whole group that was there, it was, it was all around them. It was like someone had turned on the lights in a dark room, and suddenly there was just light everywhere. Not something you expect in the middle of the night. Now this angel, not to be confused with the angel of the Lord that we read about in the Old Testament. Here it simply says an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And with the arrival of the angel came the glory of the Lord. Note that it doesn't just talk about a bright shining, but it specifically says the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord. For those who have known their Old Testament, they know this is the Shekinah glory that represents God's majestic presence that we see surrounding the tabernacle and the temple. It was this bright glory was the visible manifestation of God's presence to Israel. Israel knew that God was in the tabernacle or in the temple with the the shining of this bright light. And as the shepherds are confronted with the majesty of God, suddenly confronting them there that night, they are filled with great fear. The text doesn't just say that they were afraid. It doesn't just say that they were filled with fear, but it's actually uh, literally uh, could be translated: "They feared a great fear," which in English doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but you you get the get understand what Luke is trying to say. And so it, it's been translated as the the Old Authorized Version says: "says They were sore afraid," or. They were absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified. The glory of God was suddenly directly in front of them, surrounding them. And this glory was to indicate to the shepherds on that night and to us today that what this angel was about to say was not just delivering his message but was speaking on behalf of the Lord God. In fact, John Calvin says that this glory was to affect powerfully in the minds of the shepherds that they might receive the discourse addressed to them as come from the mouth of God Himself. It was as if God Himself was standing there and speaking to them. In the scriptures, anytime a human is confronted with the majestic glory of God or an angel, they are terrified. I mean, you just look through the scriptures and you see as soon as an angel uh, appears to somebody that they are afraid. We saw this already in in Luke, right, where an angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and then Mary in Nazareth. And the angel's first words there were, do not be afraid, because they were freaked out. They were absolutely terrified. Now, people today, in the spiritual climate that we live in, they would like the thought of of being visited by a spirit being. You know, they might write a nice blog post about it. And, you know, it might be exhilarating to experience such an apparition. And it might be enlightening and and help them on their spiritual journey. But you see, what modern man has lost is is the sense of the holiness of God. God is not a, a genie who simply exists to make our lives better. God is the very definition of purity and perfection. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, 1 John says. On the other hand, while God is perfectly holy and and perfectly uh, pure, mankind is inherently flawed. Ever since our first parents rebelled against God, mankind has loved darkness, not the light. And so as a race mankind makes sinning our daily occupation and therefore when humans are then confronted with the holiness of God the holy glory of God it causes tremendous fear to be faced with face to face with such pure perfection it pierces us to the innermost part of our being for the, holy, the one who is holy is also sovereign with all authority and justice to punish the sin of humanity. And the shepherds that night didn't know what was going to happen next. But they felt down deep into their bones that they were in the presence of holiness. And that although they didn't feel like they were doing anything wrong at the time, they knew inherently that they were in the midst of holy purity. And that God could righteously punish them any moment. And so they were sore afraid. They were absolutely terrified. But on the the heels of this terror comes next the announcement that there's a Savior in the city. This announcement found in verses 10 through 11. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel begins his message to those terrified shepherds with a word of consolation. As we've seen, the angel Gabriel gave to Zechariah and to Mary as well. They need not fear. This arrival of the glory of God is not for judgment, but is for salvation. Do not fear. Fear not. They can rest. Now, notice that he says, Fear not for or because, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Behold. This word behold means to look with intent. He's drawing their attention and ours to the purpose of the arrival, to, to the reason that fear not grip these shepherds and fear not grip us as well. He says, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Bring you good news translates only one word in the Greek from which we get the word evangelize. Euangelizo and this, it means to proclaim the good news, to gospelize. You could, you could translate it as. He says, I gospelize you. I, I deliver the gospel. I proclaim the gospel. I proclaim the good news. And this good news, he says, is of great joy. It produces great joy. The good news about to be announced of the birth of the Messiah would not jo- cause people to simply grin a little and go, hmm, that's nice. No, this is going to cause a, a tremendous celebration. Great joy. And this joy, notice, is all-inclusive. This, it'll be a j- great joy for all the people. This isn't just a joy for a select few. This is intended for joy for all. And I believe that all here, as the shepherds would have understood it, is all the people of Israel, God's chosen people. But, as we know the rest of the story, the good news becomes good news for all the nations as well. That through the death of the one who is here announced born, we, as Gentiles outside of Israel, are also to be included in this great joy. So what could possibly be so good and so joyous that heaven would come to earth and make such an announcement? Look at what the angel says in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wow! A Savior has been born In the hometown of these shepherds, they, you're saying, wait, wait, in the city of David, you mean where I've lived my whole life? In that, that city? A savior? And a savior who's been born, which means he was truly human. He was, he was born like, like the rest of us were born. And yet he's a savior. He's a deliverer. Of course, a a human deliverer would have been news enough, but this Savior was Messiah, Lord, Christ, Lord, Christ the Lord. This angel tells us three titles for this child who was born, and the cluster of these titles is not found anywhere else in the Bible. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Jesus the angel tells us this child is the Savior. The Savior that, that the Israelites would have understood from the Old Testament to know that, that God alone is the Savior of Israel. And yet here, the Savior is born. And therefore, this, this Savior is the hope of Israel. He would free Israel from their enemies and set them apart to serve the Lord. And as we know, He's a Savior who, who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, which was promised way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. This promise of a deliverer, this promise of this one who would defeat the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, a Savior. But Jesus, this child, is also the Christ Christos, which means anointed one. It's from this word that the title Messiah comes from. Mashiach in the Hebrew. And he was the one who was promised from of old to rule and to lead Israel. He would be a son of David. And Luke has made it very clear throughout this narrative in multiple places that Jesus was descended from David to fulfill the promises that were made that Jesus is truly the anointed promised Son of David. But the angel also says that he is Kyrios, he is Lord. Now, I believe that Jesus was already indicated as Lord back in chapter 1, verse 43, where Elizabeth says that the mother of her Lord has come to her, thereby indicating the mother of Jesus being the Lord. But Jesus is already called Lord there, but here Jesus is explicitly called the Lord by the messenger from heaven. And by using the term Lord, the angel is identifying the child in the manger in Bethlehem with Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of Israel who, who brought Israel out of Egypt in the great salvation, redemption of the Exodus. And who was the God who was worshipped by Israel. This Lord is now found in a manger. And so this communicated to the shepherds that this child had absolute sovereignty and was deserving of, of complete worship. I mean, these, the shepherds' minds must have been blown. Again, an ordinary night is suddenly shattered with this, this arrival of the angels. And to find out that a child has been born just, just a stone, you know, a, a few, maybe a few miles away in, in their hometown of Bethlehem, who is their savior, their Davidic leader, and their God. Now, at this point, if what the angels had said was simply an announcement and just telling them what took place would be amazing enough for them to find out and to know that this has just happened. But the shepherds probably didn't think at this point that they would be able to see this amazing child. I mean, a child of this stature, a Savior, Christos, anointed one, and the Lord, I mean, he's probably born in a palace somewhere. He's, he's probably in some, this high-ranking house or, or place that we have no access to because we're just lowly shepherds out with the sheep. This child born is, is probably too special for common men like themselves. But the angel gives them a sign It will help them to find this Savior. And we see here in verse 12 the sign. The sign for them is a baby in a manger. Now a sign had accompanied other angelic announcements. Zechariah's sign happened to be his turning mute. And Mary's sign was the fact that Elizabeth was who was called Baron was now pregnant. But this sign was a sign specifically chosen for Judean shepherds. It identifies the child as being found wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A few things to notice here that these, the angel says that this will be a sign for you, shepherds. You will find the baby. You will find. This isn't quite a command. The angel didn't say, go find this baby. It's more like an invitation. You will find. Go and see. And and see this one I've just announced. The swaddling cloths, as we noted last week, would not be anything strange. This is how all babies were wrapped in the first century. The these, ch- these men would have seen their own children wrapped in a similar way. But this child could be found in a manger. And as I argued last week, I believe this was a manger found in a typical peasant home. But the fact that the baby was in the manger would have been unique. Even though each house had mangers in them, they were not regularly used for cradles. And it was due to the, the, the crowds in Bethlehem at this time that forced Mary to use This makeshift cradle for her baby. And so, with this sign, the angel gives the shepherd something to look for. And this, and if this, as if this event and the news were not amazing enough, God continues to blow the minds of the shepherds. And he opens the door of heaven, as it were, and puts this news on grand display. And so, fifthly, we see the capstone of this event we see praise in the heavens praise in the heavens verses 13 and 14 it says and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased Luke here gives us a rare glance at the praise that's offered in heaven. The shepherds were listening to one angel in one moment, and then a moment later it says, suddenly a portion of heaven's angels suddenly appears. I mean, it's enough to have one angel in front of you and the glory of the Lord shine around you, but to suddenly see that angel instantly multiplied has got to have been absolutely jaw-dropping. We typically picture these angels as up in the sky. There's actually no indication that they were. They could have maybe been standing on the ground too. The text doesn't say. But we know that these are angels that have come from heaven. And these angels didn't show up just to make just to look pretty, but they came to praise God. And as these The multitude of angels appeared and praised God together. The shepherds got a glimpse at heavenly worship. Notice that it says a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying. Now, we don't know if they sang this as a song. We don't know if they chanted it. We don't know if they just spoke it. But it seems to be somewhat of a a poetic refrain that very well could have been sung and therefore is often called the angel song. But, and so their praise begins by, it says, glory to God in the highest. Giving glory to God is another way of ascribing praise to Him. It's, it's recognizing Him as the greatest of all beings, deserving the worship and affection of, creation, of created beings that God is deserving of all praise. The angels on that night before the shepherds declared that in the highest, when it says in the highest, it means many in the heavens where God resides, glory is being ascribed to God. Conversely, while there is praise occurring in heaven... On earth, people are to experience peace. It's a peace between God and man. He says, they, say, they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now this phrase, you might know more familiarly from the King James' version of goodwill toward men. And on earth, goodwill toward men. But we, with our modern translations, have found better and more ancient manuscripts that seem to indicate a different rendering, which is why modern translations translate it a bit differently. The ESV here, "...among those with whom He is pleased." The NIV, to those on whom his favor rests, are like the shortness of the Christian Standard Bible that says, to people he favors. On earth and on earth, peace to people he favors. What it's speaking of is that there is peace to Men of His good pleasure. Men whom God has placed His good pleasure upon. And this phrase, as one commentator said, is almost an exact technical phrase in first century Judaism for God's elect. Those on whom God has poured His favor upon. So in other words, what the angels are saying is that on earth there is peace coming to those whom God has chosen to put His favor upon. Those whom God has selected. Peace comes from the good pleasure of God. It's a peace that is first between God and man. The hostility that, that exists between us and our Creator because of our sin is now vanquished. Man can be reconciled to God. And so this peace, although is offered to all. The angels are are saying that it comes to those whom God favors. God is the distributor of peace. He cannot be manipulated to give peace to those who earn it as if that were possible. No, the godly ones are those whom God chooses to be recipients of his favor. And the shepherds that night were treated to a dazzling display of God's glory in the announcement of God's Son. And it was a scene that they would never forget. And it changed their lives. But how should this text change us? How should our lives be different as a result of the arrival of these angels? Let's look. We've looked first at the story. Let's look next at the significance. I first want to draw your attention to two words that we moved past quickly in verse 11. He says, For unto you is born this day. This The angels made it clear that this Savior who was born was born to the shepherds, was born unto the shepherds. He was the Savior for them. He was a Savior for the common people. For these these unsophisticated shepherds, he was the Savior. And in the same way, Jesus is the Savior born to you, born unto you, born unto us. He is your Savior. He's my Savior if we believe and trust in Him. You see, this message here is not good news. The message of Christmas is not good news unless we believe and trust in the Savior who was born. To believe that the Savior was for you, not for some other group, but for you individually. For you to know and believe that you need a Savior, that you needed saving, is absolutely essential. And so because Jesus was a Savior born for you and me, I believe there's four things we must do as a result that we see in this passage. The first thing we must do is fear not. Fear not. The word given to us first by the angel in verse 10. The angel says, fear not to the shepherds. And as we mentioned earlier, fear was a natural experience for those throughout the Bible who got near to God or one of the angels from his presence. And as we talked about, mankind has, ever since our first parents, we have been plagued with our sin. And we've been well aware of our sinfulness. And before Adam sinned, I mean, think about it. When Adam was in perfect relationship with God, there was no need to fear God. In fact, they would walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden, it says. And they enjoyed His presence. They enjoyed walking with Him. But what is the first thing that happens when they sin and then God shows up again? It says that they were afraid and they hid themselves. Sin creates, makes us afraid of God. It disrupts our relationship with Him. Because now, because of sin, our relationship with God has been broken and terror has now entered our lives. And this has been the experience of humanity ever since Adam and Eve. Now, we can naturally think that we know what's best for our lives. We like to be Lord over our days, deciding what we should do and how we should spend our lives. We want to be in charge. But the lie that began in the garden and has been in every person ever since, is that we won't be happy unless we be in charge. That we won't be happy if we let anybody else be in charge. And this is a lie because not only is that not how God created, created us to be happy and fulfilled, but we can't even control our lives. We can't control the people around us. We can't control the events, the circumstances, the circumstances even for those of us that believe the lie and think that we are the masters of our destiny, the captains of our souls, we have an inability to control anything around us. Frankly, we can't even control our own hearts and our own lives. And so as sinners, most people live their lives afraid. Afraid of rejection and failure by others afraid of loneliness, of being separated from others, afraid of the future and circumstances, not knowing what's going to happen, and afraid of what might be just around the corner. People are afraid of death, the Bible says. Is there fear in your heart this morning as you think about God, as you think about life? Are you living with fear? This angel's message is for you too. Fear not. There is good news that comes, that has entered our world and needs to enter and penetrate your life and your heart that you can cease and stop fearing because God has sent His Son. Jesus has come. We do not need to fear. Through faith in Him, we don't need to fear rejection and failure because we are eternally accepted by God. We are justified by faith. We are embraced by him. We are accepted. We don't need to fear the future and circumstances because we know the one who controls the future and is working all things for good. We don't need to fear death because through Jesus we are set free from that fear because Jesus conquered death. He destroyed the one who held us in fear of death. This Savior sets us free from sin, or and sin and from fear, and that is true for us this morning as well. But the second thing that we need to do as a result of Jesus being a Savior for us is to behold Jesus, behold Him, and I draw you back to that word in verse ten: behold, to look to gaze, to perceive, to understand. The angel says to behold the good tidings, behold the good news that would be of great joy. He wanted those shepherds to look upon the gospel, and that is the same calling for us this morning, that we must gaze and look and behold the gospel, the good news. The angel wanted those normal guys on that first Christmas to look at the wonderful riches given to them in the baby born. In Bethlehem. And that is what we must do as well. To look upon Christ. In all of these Christmas decorations, traditions, and gatherings, we must behold the child in the manger. We must gaze upon him. Think of the wonder of God taking on human flesh. That is the amazing reality that we celebrate. And we cannot miss it. It's so easy to get caught up in so many other things and so many other things that go on in the busyness of the season that, that we must look and gaze upon Jesus, the Savior who is born, Christ the Lord. Nothing else compares in beauty. Nothing else compares in value. Nothing else compares in the benefit for your life and your soul than Jesus. Only He bring great joy it will be for all of your life and for all of your eternity people might get a nice feeling around the holidays but those feelings fade as soon as the decorations get taken down and the festive gatherings are over we get back to our normal lives and we're faced often with our emptiness we are empty because we're trying to live lives with us in charge we're trying to set the agenda. We think we know what's best. We try to earn our worth through our accomplishments. We pour ourselves into our jobs and occupations. We try to define our identity based upon the image we present and what we wear and what we post sometimes on social media. We try to do good things to outweigh our bad. We try essentially to save ourselves day in and day out. And in that is no joy at all. It's empty. And therefore, we need to hear the message of the angels this morning. For unto you is born this day a Savior who can save you from all your striving, can save you from all of your emptiness, and can give you great and lasting and true joy as He saves your soul. He is a Savior who can pay for your sins, and truly offer forgiveness. Only by submitting to him as the cosmic Lord over all are we going to find the happiness and satisfaction for which we long. So I ask you, are you here today and feeling empty, joyless? Maybe you're feeling afraid? Behold Jesus. Look to him and nowhere else. That is what you're created to do. Only He can save you, absolutely. The third thing that we must do based upon this text is worship God. Worship God. This text ends with heaven's angels worshiping and celebrating the arrival of the Son of God. And we must join in this wonderful celebration. We must join in this wonderful praising of God. We see that if we're going to believe in heaven's son, then we must align ourselves with heaven's angels and worship the one who planned and executed this amazing plan of salvation. The revelation of the son of God to man prompted heaven's angels to break forth in praise. Because this was a real event worth celebrating. And we should see this celebration and join in the worship. We should say amen. Truly glory to God in the highest. Glory nowhere else. Glory is only to be directed to the Lord over all. And may there truly be peace on earth from the one who is Prince of Peace in which peace can only come. And we, here we see that we must believe and submit ourselves to Jesus Christ the Lord and worship God the Father. All the members of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, worship, receive worship equally. And while the Spirit is, is not mentioned here, we know it was His power that brought about the Son of God in Mary's womb. And so we know the, the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and brought about the conception of the Son of God who was born there on that that night. And the angels break forth in praising the Father in the arrival of this Son. And so church, we join the choirs of heavenly angels as we worship God for the salvation that He has provided for us in His Son. May God not allow our hearts to to be hardened by the familiarity of this amazing reality. Finally this morning, the fourth thing we do based upon this passage is to make peace. To make peace. We see the final thing mentioned in the angel's song is the peace that comes from God. I believe this, this final line points us to the reconciliation we are to find with God. As mentioned earlier, man's problem is hostility with God produced because of our sin. We want to be Lord and king over our lives, and our self-centeredness has not only destroyed our relationship with God, but with other people as well. Sin has destroyed our relationship vertically, and it destroys our relationships horizontally. We've all felt the effects of the lack of peace in our relationships with one another. Maybe it's family members or friends. <laughs> and there is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. You see, the place where peace begins is peace vertically, where we need to be reconciled to our Creator. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas, is that Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father. As Charles Wesley taught us to sing at Christmas time: hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. And this is the greatest news in the world. You can put your head on the pillow tonight and know that you have been reconciled with your Creator. There is nothing that stands between you and Him. Through Jesus, through faith in Him, your relationship is restored. Now, how do we know this peace for ourselves? I want to read you, I think, a helpful quote from Pastor Tim Keller, who says. This He says, remember that there is more than one way to express your hostility to God's rule. The irreligious person explicitly asserts his or her independence from God, saying, I want to live any way I want to live. Kind of that shaking the fist at God sort of defiance. But the religious person, much more covertly, asserts his or her independence from God. The religious person says this, I am going to obey the Bible and do all these things, and now God has to bless me and give me a good life. This is an effort to control God, not to trust Him. When you obey God in order to earn God's blessing and heaven, then you are, as it were, seeking to be your own Savior. Both these strategies are hostile to God. They don't allow Him to be either your sovereign or your Savior. And for us to know this peace is complete surrender. We must surrender ourselves to God. To cease striving, to cease the hostility, to cease the rebellion, and surrender and bow down before the Lord of all in complete surrender. And so the message of Christmas is that you can have peace with God. It saves both the religious and the irreligious. But it must begin with our confession that we are not right, that we need a Savior, that we are sinners. And then we must call out to God to save us. And we can know that if we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we will be saved. And thereby going home today knowing that we have peace with God. This text shows us this morning that Jesus was not just the Savior for the elite, for the highly privileged of society, but was for the shepherds. And therefore, it is is a Savior for us too. And the news of his arrival should prompt great joy and worship from us. We must behold that baby in the manger and see that he is our Savior, lowly and humble. He was born in a peasant home, laid in a feeding trough. And the first people to whom God chose to announce the arrival of His Son was a group of common shepherds. This is indeed our kind of Savior. This is a Savior for you. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh Father in heaven, we give you glory this morning because you are worthy of it. This wonderful plan of salvation that, that broke into human history 2,000 years ago on the first Christmas. We want to celebrate this morning. Help us, Father, in the eyes of our heart to gaze upon Christ. May we come to grips with our brokenness, with our sin, and our need for a Savior. And then may we look to Jesus, Savior, who is Christ the Lord, to find true peace and reconciliation with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.